This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. This is Kathy Worthington. Today we have as our guest, classical composer and author, Tina Davidson. She has been composing and creating works with major ensembles and orchestras, such as the Philadelphia Orchestra, the American Composers Orchestra, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, many others, and has recordings with Albany Music and on Deutsch Grammophon, performed by Grammy winner violinist, Hilary Hahn. And I'm Mary Elkins. Tina is the author of a memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken, which was published in 2023. She has a very interesting story about her childhood, which we will hear about very soon. Welcome, Tina. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you. And in your memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken, you describe growing up thinking you were adopted. When did you find out you were adopted by your birth mother? What effect did this have on you? Yeah. So I was born in Sweden, in Stockholm, Sweden, and then I was placed into a foster home down at the southern tip of Sweden in Malmö. And uh, when I was three and a half, So I was there for about three years. When I was three and a half, an American professor came, a young, beautiful woman, and she adopted me. And we moved to America. And I became, as she married, and I became um, the oldest of five. When I was 21, I actually went back. I had a job in Sweden, of all things. I had a job taking care of a family uh, daughter, a friend, a family friend, whose daughter was going to stay in Sweden and needed someone there to help her with the transition. So I decided right at the end of my, I think I was there a couple of months. And the last moment I thought, well, maybe I'll call up the adoption agency. And they said, you know, I think you should come down. And so I went down and I remember it so vividly. Uh, she was sitting in a kind of a dark little um, office and she had this piece of paper out and she said, this is a letter from your mother. And I thought, oh, this is so exciting. And so she said, your adopted mother is your birth mother. I and just never even heard it, of that. It gives me goosebumps. I know. But I've when, never heard of that. Really, You know, it was one of those moments where you get information and, you can't quite make sense of it. You just like go, what? My adopted mother? Because I had always, although my mother had never said anything about my adoption, a, adoption, I certainly knew I was adopted. And every once in a while, my brothers and sister would say, well, you're just adopted. Mm-hmm. But um, I, you know, what? she never treated me differently. I was always part of the family. I had actually taken on my stepfather's name. Um, 
he had not adopted me, but you know, I just, you know, in those days you could just sort of assume names. So you know, I went by mm-hmm. uh, Davidson. Um, but I had grown up feeling really secretly um, separated from others. Like I wanted to belong. I wanted to know the body I came from. I listened to family history and sort of know that that wasn't my family history, but I could pretend. So when I was 21 and I found out this information, I, it really was the rug was pulled out from underneath me. I had this concept, this sort of secret concept of myself that uh, was hinged on this word, adoption. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, was, I was adopted, but I was, I was adopted by my uh, biological mother. And that was sort of the beginning of sort of uncovering layers and layers of this kind of information. And I have to say on my mother's behalf, it was a really smart plan. You know, in the 50s, to have an illegitimate child was really very, very hard on women. Uh, she was had a she was studying to, in a graduate program. It was very unusual for women to get a PhD. And uh, this was a smart move. She, you know, after when I was three and a half, she brought me back to the country and I was under this umbrella, this protection of being adopted. However, there's a difference between privacy, which we all have the right to, and secrets, which are information about other people that might hurt them. And Uh secrets really damage people. Privacy, you know, everyone is entitled. And she could have certainly told me when I was, you know, 12 or 13, she could have said, hey, honey, I just have to tell you this thing. It's not something we can talk about, perhaps, but I want you to know that I'm your mother. And even when I let her know that I I knew, she was um, she wasn't really happy about it. She was happy that I knew, but she was very scared. I think that over the years, she had become a little bit more and more paranoid. And again, I think this is what happens when you have secrets is that you start to build a a shell outside of yourself around this secret. And then you have to make choices based on your secrets. And and to to an extent, the secret then can start to control you. Mm. And I think that's what happened with her. Um, so, um, we had a very difficult relationship after that for, for many years. Wow. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, that's really traumatic. And on that note, what's the relationship between all of this childhood trauma and maybe adult trauma as well to recover from that and composing your music? Well, I do think, um, that composing for me was always a place. Well, music was this safe place. It's sort of like being in a swimming pool or in a pond and you go underneath the water and you open your eyes. And it's this amazing world that has its own little sounds, but they're slightly distorted. But you kind of feel very safe in that moment because you're so immersed in that stuff that's all around you. And I do think that music acted that way to me. Um, I had a sense that I would dive into music and it was, oh, you know what? It's it's like doing dishes. <laughs> like when you're doing it dishes, is. 
nobody bothers you. Like nobody wants to get close to you, right? They don't want to help. <laughs> so you have water, you get to be alone, you're doing something productive, and it's kind of this protection. Okay, maybe not like doing dishes. I <laughs> never heard yeah, composing never. music compared to dishes swashing. I, I haven't ever heard that. And I certainly don't feel protected by doing the dishes. But <laughs> Well, in my house, when I was the oldest and doing dishes, let me tell you, nobody bothered me. You know, <laughs> I was in a free zone. So um, my book, Let Your Heart Be Broken, in fact, you know, the title really takes it from that that trauma, I think. And, and let me just read you a little bit because this is how um it's it sort of became um you know, part of my life and how I approach it. Um I was at a conference, I think it must have been in the late eighties. Um, and this is when we had AIDS and it was such an epidemic of friends and who were dying and, you know, a lot of mm -hmm. fear in a funny way is sort of our prequel to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but it was a very scary time. And I was at the open center in New York uh, city um, at a conference led by Stephen Levine, who actually I think was a Californian author, mm -hmm. poet, and he worked with Kubler-Ross on death and dying. Oh, yeah, really? books, and he was a Buddhist and beautiful, beautiful books about, dying and and um finding life in dying so he was he was asked he said he was asked you know what is the meaning of life and he says i'm asked that all the time he replies and i really don't know he pauses looking to the side he turns back smiling but i think the meaning of life is to let your heart be broken huh? the heart the round sphere of your being let your heart be broken Allow, expect, look forward to the life you have so carefully protected and cared for. Broken, cracked, rent in two. Heartbreakingly, your heart breaks and in the two halves rocking on the table is revealed rich earth, moist, dark soil, ready for a new life to begin. Oh, that's beautiful. Poetic. So poetic. I have to ask you about your foster family. You lived with them for three and a half years. And what was the effect on you having to leave them? And have you learned about the nature of love from a foster family? Oh, my goodness. I, You know, when I started, when, when my daughter was born, I was in my 30s. And I, I was writing music that I loved. And I was really feeling very connected to my daughter and to my husband. And and then I also felt my life was falling apart. I don't know what it was. It, uh, friendships were breaking. I was angry all the time. And I was holding her. I was nursing her. And I thought, you know, you have some stuff in your life that you need to address, or you're going to give it to this little girl. And it's going to be her, her heritage if you don't get off the stick and really do some work. Mm -hmm. So I started some therapy and I started connecting to my Swedish story. And what I realized that at the core of my anger, and also I'd had very severe depressions as a child, um, was this grief over losing my foster family. 
it was my family. It was my mom and my dad. And uh, they had three boys. And the youngest of those three boys was almost my age. And we were brought up as twins. We slept in the same room. We, you know, played. So when I was taken away from my family without any language or even any ceremony, no discussion about it, it was as if, you know, a bomb had gone off and they were obliterated. And that wow. I'm grieving for them. That's heartbreaking. I think we don't give foster families that kind of credit for that kind of serious connection with children. Absolutely. Um, now, we have, now we at least start to address those issues with our kids or with other kids. You know, we we know we know a little bit more than they did in the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I was amazed that I, you know, at 30, when I started delving back, that I was so full of tears. You know, I just felt like I cried for like two years uh, over Mm -hmm. this loss. This loss and also the loss of being brought up, not feeling like I belonged. There were so many things that I, I, I felt I had to grieve for. But I think that's what the book to me is really about. It that that trauma is not only where the rebirth is possible, but man, it gets in your way if you don't deal with it. It's like always a roadblock. You're stumbling over it. You know, you're dragging it behind you. You know, it's just, it's a mess. So yeah. Did you ever get to speak to that family again? Did you get back to see them? Did I called, um, and it's actually the second chapter of my family. I, I call and, and it turns out that my foster mother was so sad. She really never thought that my mother was going to come back after three years. She just, she just didn't think it was going to happen. So, um, after I left, I think there was, you know, major upset in the family and she got pregnant almost immediately and had this fourth child who is another boy. So when I finally got a number, it was for this fourth child. And I said, Oh, I'm Tina. And I used to live with you. And he said, Oh, I've always heard about you. Oh, so they really kept me alive. And then when my daughter was three and a half, I went over and spent a week with them. And then when she was 10, I went over and spent a month in Sweden, really reconnecting with the family. And my the, the foster brother that was the closest to me. Yeah. And, Did you um, find an immediate connection as if you'd never, be, you'd never left? With Sweden itself. Yes. With the family. I don't know. I, I felt, you know, because I didn't speak Swedish and they all spoke excellent English, but when they spoke together, they were only speaking Swedish. And I had the sense of being a little kid where you don't quite understand what your parents are saying, but there is a, you're listening to like, are they friendly? You know, is there a kind of verbal to this conversation? Is there like some harshness? So I just remember sort of sitting there thinking, oh, this was what it was like when I was a kid. And then at one of the dinners, one of the um, daughters-in-law brought a little box and she said, oh, here, this is for you. Solveig, my foster mother, saved these. And I opened it up and there are two tiny little dresses that she had saved. Oh, oh. Um, 
that's so beautiful. So there was such love there. Oh my God. She really loved me. And I think that love always stayed with me in, even though I didn't know it. And I think that is what I find really a miracle. Even when you've lost love, sometimes it's still there for you. Um, and you can pick up little, little pieces of it. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, well and you found the love in your music too. Do you remember a life-changing experience that actually led you to be a classical composer? Not really. You know, I was always, my mother always made me play the piano. And when I was at five, I started and at seven, she was like paying me five cents an hour to practice. (laughs) And then I renegotiated it to 10 cents an hour. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe that at seven, I was practicing an hour, but I apparently I did. But I also love to read. Again, another place of complete privacy and comfort. You know, you fall mm-hmm. into a book. And and so one day I decided, well, maybe I could, you know, do both at the same time. So I opened up my book and I pl- put it on the piano. And then I w- had memorized my music and I'm playing away and I'm reading my book. And my mother. At the same was time? Not- <laughs> yeah. My mother was not particularly attentive to things around the house because um, she was teaching full time. Um, but my piano teacher said, oh, yeah, you definitely didn't practice this week. I can, I can tell. <laughs> um, I think what attracted me the most to music was that, and there's a quote by a philosopher named Mumford, that the artistic endeavor is to be heard but not to be found. And I think that that was really true for me, that I could express myself in music and really feel um, that I could really talk about myself, but you might not know it because Mm -hmm. it's in this coded language. And so it was very interesting to write. Um, And I've always written, I've always journaled because I think it's a very important part of an artistic process is to find language around your experience so you can understand it from a different viewpoint or dig deeper. Um, Mm. But writing, you know, does not uh, avail you of quite the same protection as, as, as music, music. Well, I, in your memoir, let your heart be broken. You describe the artistic process of composing music. So can you tell us about that? Well, I talk about it all the way through my book. So, oh, okay. There's, there's a chapter that's always sort of, oh, sorry about my dog. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> He's composing. He's composing. Stairs to walk across, you know, in, on on our road. So, one chapter is always a little short story about my life, and then the next chapter is my journals from my 30s and 40s about living in Philadelphia, being a single parent, and writing music. And a lot of times I'm reflecting on my childhood. Um, I'm clearly processing my childhood as I talk about it in these stories. And then the third chapter is a story of my childhood and so on. And as you get towards the end of the book, these come closer and closer together, these old old journals and um, my childhood stories or young adult stories at that point. But so that I'm always talking about composing in each of these um alternate journal chapters. And you'll see that I start writing 
um, music about some of the things that I'm experiencing in my personal life about my childhood. So I felt when I left Sweden that there was a dark child that was left behind, that and it held all my sad feelings. And there was a shining child who was, or the shining girl, who was like the the happy, you know, we're going to make the best of this. We're going to, you know, take care of everybody around us. We're going to be really compliant, et cetera. So I have a cello quartet for four cellos, and it's called Dark Child Sings. Oh. And it's really about allowing this part of me to have voice in my music. Um as How old were you when you did your first composition, musical? Composition? I was actually in college, and it was a requirement, and I was pretty grumpy about it. I, I just didn't think I wanted to write music. But after the semester of writing music, that's all I could think of doing was composing. So it really latched on to me as a, a voice, a way to, to speak. Um, mm. Later on... Um, Oh, at, at one point I, I've divorced and um, I, I'm a single parent for quite a, I think for about nine years. And at one point I'm, I'm, I met a young man and um, that relationship just unleashed these feelings about love. And so I wrote a piece called Fire on the Mountain. Mm. And it's actually about <clears throat> a dream I had where I'm, trying to photograph, of all things, a white horse lying on a couch outside. And I can't, you know, I'm too close to the horse. I can't it can't get a picture of it because I'm too close. So I step back. And as I step back, I look up in the mountain and I see there's either a glow or maybe a fire. And I realize, oh, my relationship to love is that I'm always too close. I want to dive in and I don't have enough perspective. So this piece, Fire on the Mountain, is really about that kind of anguish of love and the, the fast-pacedness of love and um, trying to find myself in it. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, I talk a lot about my process. I talk a lot about listening to music. And I'm always trying to speak about it, not in musical terms, you know, not in like, oh, a G clef mm -hmm. or, you know, a chord. Yeah. Uh, but in ways, well, it's actually the ways I think about it, which is um, more about relationships. Like if notes actually had relationships, they might have positive and negative. They, they might, you know, have magnetic qualities. They move on their own. They want to go someplace or or energy, which is rhythm. It wants to, you know, it always wants to transform itself. It it wants to go and it wants to go, but then it wants to, as it lands, oh, it wants to go someplace else slightly yeah. differently. So I'm very, and I talk a lot about, about that kind of, uh, you know, what rhythms mean to me, what, what harmonies, uh, mean. That to sounds me. like an actual musical piece though, going as it transforms itself into different types of movements. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do that a lot in, it's kind of a form that I've developed that I really love. It's almost like a journey, which is kind of like life. Yeah. And you, you know, you have a destination, you're going, you're, des you're going to the destination. And then at the minute of arrival, you go, Oh, I want to keep on going. I'm going to another destination because it's a journey. Yeah. You know, life. it's not, yes, it's life. Yeah. 
I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your book because your book has been described as, I'm, I'm quoting now, lyrical reckoning with what it takes to compose a life of cohesion and beauty out of shattered bits and broken stories. How do you yeah. do that? Oh, boy. I think you, you apply every tool you have, you know, um, journaling, therapy, being really emotionally honest with yourself. Um, oh, having good friends, having a support group. Um, I always say to young composers, if, if they feel that their friends or families are not supporting their work, find new friends, you know, <laughs> go, go find people who say yes to you that really believe that possibilities can be endless if, you know, they're not that that if you work hard enough, you know, you can find your own path. It's that that I as a person can't say to you, oh, don't do that. You know, I always want to say yes to people. Um mm -hmm. also very important to me, um two things uh, forgiveness and um opening up to a spirituality a sort of sense a larger sense of self. And the first one I describe in my story and my uh, memoir, sort of at the end of the book, that I had been so angry at my mother and my stepfather. And my stepfather was a difficult man and not prone to um, being loving or supporting. So I decided one day that as I walked my dog and I had a, a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, very muscular walk down the street. So I was living in Philadelphia and I decided that I was going to forgive everybody in my life and I didn't have to mean it. I was just going to say the words. I was going to say, I forgive you. So I'd walk after this dog who was of course tugging me and sniffing things and driving me nuts. And at first I'd forgive myself and then my little daughter and then my ex-husband and then my brothers and sisters, my colleagues. And then I got to my mother and my father. And this was about 20 minutes in the walk and I was hot and I was tired. And I would say things like, oh, I hate you. I forgive you. I can't believe this. I forgive you. And I think I probably terrorized the whole neighborhood. You know, every morning there would be this crazy woman who was, oh. yes. Because <laughs> it. it was all loud and verbal. You weren't doing this inside your head, oh, huh? And I think because I gave myself permission just to say it and not have to mean it, mm -hmm. I was able to keep up the practice for about a year. And what I noticed, it wasn't that it restored affection or brought me into this amazing new relationship with my mother and stepfather. But I could be kind to them. And that was amazing. I could be with them and not feel like I had to leave. Um, well, one, that's good. Yeah. One Christmas, they gave me a present. I said, thank you. And when they were old, um, particularly my mother, who lived to 99, um, I was able to genuinely help care for her in a very open-hearted way. Um, mm -hmm. And that meant everything to me, that I could be brought to kindness, that I wasn't holding this anger and, you know, it being morphed into this kind of sarcasm or 
bitterness. Uh, so forgiveness, um, however you do it. You know, well, that's interesting that it works the same way, no matter how you do it. I wanted to ask you about the secrets because mm-hmm. secrets played such a big part in your life. Do you, do you have advice to others about keeping secrets? What would you say to them? I don't advise it. <laughs> I think, um, you know, again, <clears throat> I would say it depends upon, um, you know, in AA, when you go back and you, you, uh, ask for forgiveness from people, they're very careful and they say, don't, don't admit or, uh, secrets that would hurt other people. Um, and I think that's very wise advice. You know, I just want to tell you, you know, now that we're divorced that I did so and so when it perhaps it doesn't mean anything to them and it might hurt them. Um, I, I try not to keep secrets. Um, I think it's a personal choice. I know that the, that I think that, um, I, I call it in my book, the puppeteer of darkness, the one who controls you, uh, because of your secrets and, Mm. um, and makes you do things and forces you to, you know, hide yourself, you know, you're hiding in one area and then you can be hiding in another. So I, I, um, I certainly don't sit down and talk to my daughter about everything, but on the other hand, if she asked me something, I certainly would, you know, tell the truth, uh, if she wanted to know, or if I felt it was important for her to understand something. Um, because imagine how your mother must've suffered keeping that secret all the time. She must've really suffered with it because she had to sit there and, and, and watch your siblings say to you, well, you're just adopted. And she has to bite her tongue and not say she's really not adopted that way. I don't know if she, she, she even, I think that actually her allegiance to the secret made her not hear those things. Mm. Um, Wow. I think you, I, I don't know. I, I can only tell you what I've observed and that for her, it became almost like an addiction. She mm-hmm. then had to, so, and I write about mm-hmm. it in my book. When I got married, um, she, I was going to invite both my, my biological fa- family, my father's side and my, and my mother, and she would not come. She wanted me to have two weddings, uh, one for her side of the family and one for my biological side, because she didn't want to be the fallen woman at my wedding. And I said, well, I don't know about that, but I can't make accommodations for you in this regard. You know, it's actually very important to me that I bring my family together and and am am supported at one event by everyone. Um, You said she wasn't going to come. Yes, yes, and that was that was very Uh hard for her. And I'm, I think that was part of the cost. Yeah, Um, high cost. A big cause. And I have to say, my mother was an amazing feminist and um, an amazing role model for women uh, to be a full professor, to have five children. She spoke many languages. She was an amazing teacher. She was an amazing communicator, beloved by her students. 
And um, always an interesting, fascinating person to talk to. You're always like, oh, yeah. Um, so I, I do want to show a complete picture of her. Well, you've That's forgiven nice. her, which is really <laughs> lovely. And I would love to hear more about your thoughts on forgiveness. And it was very moving what you said before. And also about, in, in fact, in your book, I know you speak a lot about that forgiveness and grieving and the spiritual connection. So what was the value of the spiritual connection in your life? And and did you practice it by walking on the street and speaking out? Or how did you practice it? Well, I think in the first 10 years of composing, I sort of was composing without really understanding who I was. The second 10 years, I started doing therapy and really started to integrate myself. And I found that I was really very unintegrated. There were lots of bits of me that I had to sort of pull in like balloons and, you know, place. And sometimes they had a lot of negative talk to me. You know, how could you do this? So I had a lot to deal with. And then in the third and the fourth decade and even into this decade, I started thinking about outside of myself, which is sort of the spiritual connection. What is, is it, you know, I had to really think since I had been so depressed for so many years and through therapy stopped being depressed, I was scared that my my artistry was really linked to my depression. It wasn't really me. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't be happy and write music. And then I thought, well, this is like another addiction. You, you got to let go of that. You know, you've just got to jump ship and hope for the best. And, and that's, I think, when I started to look at the bigger picture, which was about hopefulness and abundance versus scarcity. It was about something bigger. Um, unnameable if you you can name it or you don't have to name it um and i started writing a lot of music about it um mm. so i have a, a piece called it is my heart singing and that's sort of about that sense of opening up my heart and just allowing my singingness to come out um then i have a piece called delight of angels cuz i was reading about angels and they apparently, according to Jewish tradition as well as Christian tradition, um, many times are dancing endlessly in the joy of being with the divine. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be amazing to just live life in that kind of endless joy? And um, so, and when I write music, I always take the title or the words or the idea. And I hold them in my head as I'm writing music. So it's not like I'm trying to describe this, you know, oh, these are the angels dancing, but I'm just always exploring it as, as I'm composing. Uh, what else? Um, I'm interested now in this, you know, fourth and fifth decade that my titles, which used to be quite long, like uh, Hilary Hahn, who is an amazing virtuosic violinist and Grammy winner. She um, commissioned a small piece for me called the blue curve of the earth. And I also, you know, just like my sense of this, the beauty of the, the curve of the earth and that curve. Um, 
Now, why did I bring this up? Oh, so you could see my titles were kind of long. <laughs> Lucre of uh-huh. Fear, et cetera. But now they've become very sort of short. So I have a piece um, that's going to be recorded at the end of the year called Tremble. And to me, trembling is sometimes you tremble because you're excited about something. Sometimes you tremble because you're scared. Sometimes you tremble because you're in love. You know, there are all these feelings of trembling. Um, The piece I wrote during the pandemic is called Leap. And it was sort of this idea of how we had to sort of all leap off the edge of this unknown into this new life. And it was uh, uncertain ground. It was uh, uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, what was it like to be a single parent working as a composer? I mean, what what advice would you have for people that maybe are getting into music, trying to juggle that? I think, you know, at that point, I wasn't, I was a bit of anomaly. Um, Now I think many more women are are doing it and having partners who are willing to partner uh, with them in it. I'm not saying it's any easier, but um, maybe there, there are more soldiers behind them that they can go, oh yeah, let's do that. It was really hard um, finding the right kind of babysitters. And, you know, I had the dilemma that so many of us mothers have, you know, a, a sick day is a catastrophe. You know, early dismissal is like, oh my gosh, how many early dismissals? Oh, a snow day. Oh, you know, <laughs> anything like that uh, can really ruin your work for the day. Um, so combining myself with other families, you know, I, I really learned a lot of strategies that uh, a lot of us learn. And I also was very careful that I only had one child and that was beneficial um, to me. Um, after, uh, after 2000, when I moved to Lancaster, I actually did remarry and had three younger, um, uh, stepchildren, and that's a whole nother kettle of fish, multiple children. Um, so with one mm. daughter, it, it was unbalanced and difficult, but possible. I think the hard part for her was, I don't think she always felt that I had, she had my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't, you know, and that's something we talk about. And I said, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, I wasn't always attending to you. I was in my head or going to concerts or, you know, you're absolutely right. That was hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet you have so much love in you. Um, and you write in your book so eloquently about love. And I, uh, there's a quote that we took out of there, uh, which says, marked by absence, I was in the end found by love. And I love that. Can you tell us more? And also, I hope that your daughter is feeling your love now, too. Well, let me just before I answer the question about the quote, it is an extraordinary experience to write about your life and have your adult daughter read it and see her life from a different perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. understand things better, um, understand herself better. It's really ex- an extraordinary experience. She's, um, you know, in her late thirties and she calls me up and she's, wow, I didn't realize that 
music was your voice and your refuge. I, I didn't have any perspective about that. So that is really, really a gift. Up mm-hmm. at the end of the book, um, I do talk a lot about what remains behind. You know, what, what do we have? What are the, you know, I, um, so again, my life has been a rift. A rich journey out of darkness, marked by absence. I was in the end found by love. Love is remarkable and durable. Even lost love, love squandered or love interrupted. It stands by you silent and strong until you discover the source. Love is what I stumble on in the dark, in the half light, in the glare of the morning rising, in the sweet clearness of the afternoon and in the gray blue mist of setting sun. Love is the lesson. The universe is the book, says the old Sophie saying, always in action, never in words. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, Listen, Tina, what would you like our listeners to have as a takeaway today? Oh, boy. You know, I've been a little bit on the bandwagon about trusting your creativity. I, I am a, a composer when I teach. I always want everybody to compose. I always want people to feel that they have creativity. Uh, a lot of the community work I've done in, in public schools is about going in and teaching kids to write music, but also to, to almost learn to possess their own creativity, take it with them, you know, know that it's part of the gifts that we have. We have two arms, we have two legs, we have creativity. Yes, some people have more of it. Some people have less. It's sort of like talent. Some people have a lot. Some people have, uh, and you always supplement it with hard work. You know, you unfortunately you can't get away from, you know, I tell some of my really talented students that go, you know, he hasn't been practicing. And I said, you know, talent requires work. It demands work. It's nothing without work. Um, so I think, you know, that you, that you, um, Trust your creativity that you believe in it is is very important to me. And when when you get out of a divorce and you're remaking your life, that's creativity. Or when you start a new job or you start a family, it's all about creativity and resilience. Um, And I guess that would be a takeaway. Wonderful. That's so beautiful. And of course, it does apply to every aspect of life. creating joy as well. Yes. Our, our guest today on Late Boomers has been composer Tina Davidson, an author of the memoir entitled Let Your Heart Be Broken, which is available on Amazon. And you can listen mm-hmm. to her music on Spotify, on your favorite or on your favorite music platform. She's on Instagram at Tina Davidson Music. Thank you so much, Tina. I'm oh. Pleasure. I'm trembling. That was beautiful. Oh. <laughs> and, and we want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and mm-hmm. at Late Boomers and write to us on our website, lateboomers.biz, with any suggestions you may have. Also, please subscribe to our podcast on your pre- favorite platform and on our YouTube channel, Late Boomers Podcast where you can watch us. We're grateful for our listeners around the world, and we always strive to bring you something of value to inspire or motivate or entertain you. See you next time.
Thanks again, Tina. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.